In the beginning, there was darkness. A void waiting to be filled with the echoes of destiny. From the depths of time, legends emerged. Heroes forged in the fires of adversity, their stories etched in the fabric of eternity. Through the sands of ancient deserts, across the vast expanse of galaxies, and amidst the tumultuous waves of the ocean, their journeys began. But amidst the chaos, there arose a whisper, a call to action, a beacon of hope. Now, as the world holds its breath, a new tale unfolds, a story of courage, of triumph against all odds. Join us as we delve into the depths of imagination, as we embark on a journey beyond the realms of possibility. For in every tale lies a lesson, in every legend a truth waiting to be discovered. This is not just a podcast. This is an odyssey, a quest for knowledge, a quest for inspiration, a quest for the very essence of what it means to be human. Welcome, dear listeners, to a world of infinite possibilities. Welcome, dear listeners, to the True Life Podcast. David Walton, sometimes described as the heir to Michael Crichton, has written several incredible books that I have found to be, I'm not sure there's a better word than incredible that can describe some of your work. So for those of the people that may not know you, David, would you be so kind as to maybe introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm, uh, I'm David Walton. I've been uh, writing science fiction for uh, a while now, uh, I guess about uh 20 plus years, 25 years, something like that. And uh, in, in the more recent half of that, I uh, have uh, about eight novels that uh, I have out. The uh, latest one is, uh, is Living Memory. Um, I've won the Philip K. Dick Award and the Campbell Award uh, for my novels, um, uh, as well as uh, uh, a award from the National Space Society for uh, short fiction and um, have had uh, the incredible privilege of uh, getting to meet a lot of different authors that I read when I was young and uh, have uh, experienced a lot of uh, exciting things uh, as, as part of my writing uh, career. It's been, uh, it's been a ride. Man, that's so amazing. And just so everybody can see, this is the newest book. It's called Living Memory by David Walton, and it's the first book in a trilogy. Before we get into the book, I, was, I, I have always learned that the best place to start seems to be at the beginning. So let's let's do that. What was it that inspired you to become a science fiction writer? Well, um, I had the probably the uh, the thing that kicked it off was I had a, a friend in college who was uh, trying to write science fiction. He was uh, writing short stories and sending them off to Asimov's and fantasy and science fiction, all kinds of different magazines and getting them all rejected. And I thought, that looks like fun. So I started writing short stories myself and sending them off to magazines to get them all rejected. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, 
it, it, it took a little while, but, uh, you know, it to, uh, be, before I actually, uh, you know, got my first sale, but, um, yeah, I, I mean, I love reading science fiction. I, I read, uh, a, a tremendous amount in the genre and, um, it's just, uh, an exciting genre to write in because, uh, you know, anything is possible and, uh, you can let your ideas and your imagination run wild. Yeah, that's so true. It's so great to hear, like, I'm not happy that you failed in the beginning, but it's nice to hear someone successful talking about they had failures in the beginning because so often by the time your work gets published and you have, you know, a series of wins beneath your belt, it seems to the common person like, oh, well, this person's just gifted or this person just has everything. So it's nice to get to hear the backstory of, of how you got to be where you were. So thanks for sharing that. You know, I recently heard a, a pretty good quote and I wanted to get your opinion on it. It said that the the this particular gentleman was saying that he believes science fiction is the true literature of the 20th century. What do you think about that quote? <laughs> well, it, uh, it it it's obviously a one biased toward <laughs> toward science fiction. So um, you know there certainly be uh, uh, plenty of people who would say there's more literature than just science fiction, and uh, and of course I would have to agree with that, but. Uh, I mean, the, I think the reason that one would say something like that um, is because uh, a lot of the experiences that people uh, have in life in the 20th and 21st century have to do with the impact of technology on their lives and how, uh, you know, each generation is experiencing things that are radically different than the generation before, which, of course, for, you know, a lot of history was not the case. You, you're, you're, uh, new generation was doing the exact same thing that the old generation does. And well, well now that um, has changed in some dra drastic ways and everybody in their lifetime sees technology change, um, culture change, their own personal lives change, how they interact with people in their lives, what jobs are available, all of those things, um, you know, in the course of their lifetime change dramatically. And so science fiction is a literature that, uh, you know, helps people think about that and comes to term, come to terms with that and, and understand uh, what life is like in that kind of context. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. I'm glad you said it like that. I, it's very interesting to think about the rate of change in which we live today. And then if you want to go off on it and have an awesome thought experiment to think about how science fiction has inspired that. Sometimes I, I don't know which one is pushing one. Is imagination pushing science fiction or is science fiction pushing imagination? What do you think about that? Well, I mean, it, it seems like those two uh, things are very intertwined. <laughs> yeah. um, what, one thing that I do uh, find interesting is the, uh, the degree to which uh, people um, in various uh, technology fields, whether it's, uh, you know, people in the government who are investing in uh, technology or people uh, working for big tech firms or, you know, whatever it is, uh, you know, scientists working in a lab are informed in their ideas of what is possible and what, uh, what we might um, strive for as uh, human beings based on the science fiction that they've read and a lot of the ideas that science fiction have put forth. They use those terms, those ideas for, uh, you know, thinking doesn't mean that everything in science fiction is possible or is where we're actually going, but people use that as a, as a structure for considering what might we really invent or where might we go as a, as a, uh, you know, populace. Yeah. That's, that's great to think about it. It kind of goes hand in hand with 
people's professions as well as their passions. If you think about it from that angle, like I can see how someone may be in an incredibly progressive scientific field and also have an incredible imagination. I'm wondering, you know, as I was reading your book, I wanted to tell you that I really admire the structure of not only living memory, but all the books you write. It, it seems to me, and I have, this is my opinion. I've found that, that the, there's almost like an effortless flow from narration to dialogue. You know, there's like this, this awesome narration part, and then it goes right into the people talking. And it's, it's this effortless structure that allows me to almost feel like I'm there. It really helps with my ability to imagine the way you've laid it out. And I'm curious if, if that was a trial and error or how you, how your grasp of language to get there. How do you, how did you do that? Well, um, I, I'm glad you. I'm glad you like it. I'm glad it works for you. Um, it was uh, a lot of work. Um, I, I, I told you um, how uh, often I was rejected early on, um, and there's certainly um, a lot. Uh, you know, even if you uh, grow up and and you're you know writing a lot of essays in school or whatever, so you feel like, well, I have command of the English language. Um, there is a lot of um, thought into how do you uh, put together a story and how do you, uh, you know, as you say, um, how does dialogue work with narrative and how do you uh, use uh, suspense to make a story flow and, and what do you reveal early and what do you reveal late and, and how do you reveal it? You know, there's just a lot of craft to be studied and learned. And, um, you know, I read a lot of books and, and you know, with the eye of, you know, there gets to be a point where um, when you're really trying to learn, where you can't just read a book or a short story and, and just enjoy it as it is. You're, you're picking it apart. You're studying. You're saying, how did they do that? Why did they choose that? Why did they do it that way? Um, read books that other people wrote on, you know, on how to write well, um, and uh, and was part of a writers group and and constantly trading criticism and stuff like that. So there were, you know, early years there where I was just really working hard on my craft, um, and that um, that bar of um, getting rejected or accepted to things is, uh, uh, you know, I guess for some people it's maybe not very motivating because you're like, I'm not doing that. I just get rejected all the time. But <laughs> if you're uh, it, if that's what you want to do, it is a, a motivator towards trying to refine your craft and, and make it work, make it work well um, for the, the markets that you're trying to reach and the readership that you're trying to reach. So. Um, so, yeah, it's a lot of a lot of work to to uh, to get there. And, um, you know, people have different um, styles that they like. So my style isn't going to be for everybody, but um, I, I'm glad it works for you. <laughs> yeah, I think it works for a lot of people. I mean, I think I'm hopeful that people will see this interview, but more, I'm more hopeful that people will pick up your book and, and really get to see what I saw in there. I'm curious is you had said that, you know, one of the reasons why you were able to do this was because of your ability to be persistent. Is that something that you, is that a quality you have in your life with other things that you do? Is it permeate all of David Walton this persistence? Um, I think it is. Yeah. I mean, um, you know, it, when I think of what it takes to succeed at a lot of things, I think persistence, uh, you know, a combination of persistence and luck is, is probably, uh, you know, a lot of what it takes, um, you know, whatever it is that you, um, you know, set your sights on doing, um, 
the, you know, there are obviously people who they just do it the first time and they have a tremendous amount of luck um, and thus they don't need the persistence. Um, but if that's your, if that's your business plan <laughs> or if that's your, your plan for life is, is I'm going to be lucky, you know, I'm going to win the lottery. Um, then that's not a very good plan. And it's not probably going to work out for you, even though it occasionally works out for some people. For most people, it takes persistence. It takes doing it again and again and learning from um, what uh, you can learn from in terms of, uh, uh, you know, refining and, and getting better at it. And, uh, you know, yeah, if I, if I were going to, you know, give advice to uh, people who are just starting to get into this business, say it, it takes persistence expect that you know don't expect to be a bestseller out of the gate um, sure it's possible but it's not likely um, you want it persist at it yeah I, I I wonder sometimes when I get to, when I read the authors I begin listening to their story and it makes me think of their story so that's why I had asked that question was was one of your parents super imaginative or do you think that maybe you got some genes from your parents to help you make make you this way or is it genetic or what's going on there yeah I I don't know that I have a good answer to that question um, <laughs> there there are certainly uh, there are certainly some things that I can uh, see coming from my parents, but um, I, I don't really think that's one of them. So <laughs> I, I, I don't know where that um, you know that creative storytelling uh, urge comes from. It's uh, you know certain certain. I, I will give uh, give this. Um, uh, you know, I did certainly grow up in a house where um, reading was greatly appreciated and books were appreciated. And so. Um, it was a, a culture of reading. I read at a young age. I read a lot. Um, we went to the library all the time. Uh, you know, so in terms of of loving books and loving storytelling, that that is something that uh, that I grew up with and came from my upbringing. That's so awesome to hear. In my house, I always tell my daughter, "Readers are leaders." You know, and if if we if we can look back to like the Homeric verses, we see this culture of storytelling. And if you look at other places around the world, like that's. That was one of the great things people would get together. And I always loved going camping and someone would read a story or even being a kid and getting a bedtime story. This idea of the story seems to be something that's ingrained in all of us. And a good story is very hard for us to turn away from. And so I'm just super thankful that you've continued this, you know, this legacy of storytelling because it's so amazing to me. And, and I, I think a lot of people are going to love this first book of the trilogy, Living Memory, right here. So I was curious if you could maybe talk a little bit about how, what does it look like from a blank sheet of paper before you start getting into the book? Yeah. So, I mean, you're going to get a different answer uh, from different authors, uh, uh, you know, for that. But for me, um, a lot of it always starts with uh, the, the science that I am enthused about. Um, so you can kind of see if you look through uh, some of my books um, you know, I, I got into quantum physics and I thought quantum physics was really cool. And so I uh, so I wrote superposition because it made my mind explode with all kinds of uh, ideas of, um, you know, what was possible there. And, you know, I started, uh, you know, reading about uh, mycology, the study of fungus. Um, it was like, wow, you know, fungus is, you know, you just think of like athlete's foot or something, but or the mold on your mold on your shower. But, uh, you know. Uh, fungus is actually this, you know, really fascinating, uh, you know, very wide variety of species that do all sorts of different things. And, um, you know, and so I wrote The Genius Plague because I got into that. So um, for me, uh, a lot of times it, it, it's a, um, a science or a technology that I get very interested in. And then I'm only, almost doing the research without it being research yet. 
because I'm just reading a lot about that topic, um, getting excited about it, having my uh, mind stretched in various ways. Um, and then, you know, story ideas start to pop out from that. And, uh, you know, when I start in with the actual narrative, um, I already have my brain crammed full of uh, all sorts of, you know, cool ideas about, uh, about that topic. Yeah. In, in this particular book, I really enjoy the way you kind of tied in some of today's sort of headlines or some the way society is moving today, at least in some ways. And I, I thought that that was a cool thing. Do you use that same method for writing a book as character development and issues in the book? Um, I, I'm sorry, I didn't quite follow the question. Okay. <laughs> so in, in, in this book, I, I really admired the way in which some of society's things that are happening today like it seems today that we are working away from masculinity in today's society one could make that argument and in this in the new book that i was reading it seems like maybe that might be weaved into the storyline there a little bit was that like a conscious process or do you take things that are happening in today's society and put them into the book to kind of put your own spin on them well i i mean i certainly want um the uh, the things that are happening in the book to be uh, relevant to people and in some way speak to uh, you know it, you know we talk about the difference that you know some people call fiction um, lying for a living um, and 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 I don't really like that um, uh, you know it's kind of funny and I understand why people say that because it's kind of fun to say but um, I I think that uh, you know fiction ought to uh, be telling truth. Um, uh, you know, fiction, even though the events that it talks about uh, are not actually, uh, you know, true things that happened. Um, the things that it tells us about ourselves, about our world, about how it works when we say, you know, this is how people would react in this situation. Um, this is how countries or governments or society would react in this situation to this technology or to this situation. Uh, you know, it, 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 if we're doing our jobs well, it ought to be true. It ought to reflect true things about uh, human beings, about the human condition, um, about uh, how our world is structured and how it changes and how it works, um, so that we are actually, uh, you know, learning things by thinking about the implications of these, you know, what if scenarios in science fiction, um, because they are in some ways true. I like that answer. Right? And now that I now that I hear you say that I can, I, it's like, it's like seeing a magic trick. You know, if I show if, if I do a magic trick, you look at me and be like, wow, that was a cool magic trick. But if I show you how that magic trick's done, you have a better understanding of what's really happening. And now that I get to hear your answer, it does reveal to me the truths in all of your books. They're really true to the nature of what's going on in the world. And I admire that. Thanks for sharing that story with that. I it's it's always awesome for me to get to talk to an author and get to understand how they think so that I can add another dimension to how I read their book. And I hope other people can do that as well. Thanks for sharing that. I, I really enjoyed it. What, so as, as you spoke earlier, the science and the things that you're into inspire the book. So it seems to me, if we follow that logic, you've been into dinosaurs lately. <laughs> yes. That's, that's a good, uh, a, a reasonable conclusion. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> 
I mean, there's a, there's a sense in which I've been into dinosaurs for a long time. Uh, you know, when I when I was a kid, I was the kid who who got the book books of dinosaurs out from the library and um, regaled my parents' friends about uh, the the uh, you know various um, multisyllabic names and uh, you know what era they lived in and uh, various things about them because because that was really cool. Um, but uh, but yeah, I I um, I think. Um, I, I think dinosaurs are fascinating. I think uh, specifically the, um, the the process of evolution is fascinating in thinking about um, how different traits uh, come about and how species come and go. And uh, you know, certainly um, there's a lot in this book about the the idea of uh, extinction events um, and. Um, you know, considering uh, our future as uh, a human race, while we uh, look at the uh, you know this um, uh, the the what happened with uh, the, the the dinosaurs in the Cretaceous, and um, you know, so and obviously uh, more to come uh, on that regard as we get into uh, to books two and three. Yeah, I really admired the way in which the dinosaurs lived in this particular book. Like I. It seemed a lot like a primitive tribe. I don't want to say primitive because they're not really primitive. You know, you could argue that they're more advanced than we are. But I really admired the way in which you stayed true to the. Gosh, it's so hard for me to even to say, like, I really admire the way in which you created the world they live in. I thought that was an amazing job. And, and another thing that I thought was very original was the way in which they communicated. How, how did you come, up, come upon this idea of the olfactory sense being this? Obviously, it's tied to memory, but how did you come upon this idea? Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, in, in many ways, it's uh, it's like creating an alien species. Right. Yeah. You know, this is not uh, it's not aliens from another planet. This is, uh, uh, you know, aliens from our own history. But <laughs> but I'm making them up. You know, they, they, they didn't really exist. Um, and so, um, yeah, you know, part of what you want to do when you're coming up with uh, an alien species, at least as far as I'm concerned, is, uh, you know, to think of um, things that are unique about them that will um, inform everything that is uh, about them, everything that they do. And so, uh, you know, I, I've read books like um, like Adrian Tchaikovsky's uh, Children of Time. I don't know if you're familiar with that yeah. one about spider evolution. You know, spiders are left <laughs> left on a planet and uh, they're evolving over the course of a long period of time. And, and then you get this uh, look into, you know, what their culture is like. And it's very spider-like, you know, it, it incorporates yeah. into that culture all sorts of aspects of uh, spider biology that informs then what their culture is like. Um, and so that's part of what I was trying to do here to say, you know, okay, I've got this idea of um, a species that, uh, you know, communicates through, um, or, you know, that has a really exceptional sense of smell, off the charts sense of smell. Right. Which of course, there are a lot of species that, uh, you know, have significantly more uh, sense of smell than humans do that are alive today. Um, and and a lot of their interaction is um, you know much less in the sight and sound world that we tend to inhabit, and much more in the uh, chemical world that is uh, you know part of what their really good sense of smell is telling them about what the world is constructed out of. And so 
you know, I thought, well, a, an intelligent species that, that is coming from that kind of perspective, um, their whole way of interacting, their way of communicating, the technology that they develop, the culture um, and how it's put together um, is going to be informed by that very different way of seeing the world. Um, because they uh, think from a chemical perspective. And so, uh, you know, technologies that have to do with, uh, with chemistry and, um, and biology and uh, genetics are going to come more easily to them, be more obvious to them. Um, and uh, technology that, you know, the technology path that we have taken, you know, through iron and bronze and, and you know, a lot of those uh, you know, materials that we think of as essential to a modern society, uh, you know, was not something that, um, that occurred to them at all or, or would have been much farther down their development path um, because they were, you know, they were dealing with a, a completely different way of approaching the world. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that was um, uh, very fun to explore and to tease out what would the implications be of uh, this uh, species where the sense of smell was their primary sense and their primary mode of communication. Yeah. Well, it was very fun to read and I, it shows in there. So thank you. I, I, I remember hearing a story a while back that I don't know if it was a uh, Terrence McKenna or if it was a lecture of some sort, but in this particular lecture, the professor said, the next time you walk into a crowded room, take a deep breath and then be be conscious of where your eyes go to. Like if you look at a person, maybe that's a person you're attracted to. Maybe it's a person you should be aware of. But do those two things in combination with each other because the, the, the information we get from smell is very important. And as soon as I read your book, I, it's like, oh, yeah, I remember hearing this lecture one time. And it, it just gets me thinking, which great fiction does like yours, is it gets one thinking about what is possible. And I, I really began to think about like, yeah, maybe we, we're not using our sense of smell that much. Like, what do we, do we really study that sense of smell? If you look at all these other animals that seem to rely on it for a daily use or, you know, I noticed my cat coming up and always smelling and, you know, we all know that dogs smell. And it's so amazing to think about that way, how this thing right in front of us could give us so much information. But yet I have to read a great fiction book to even see the daily things in front of me there. Thank yeah. you for doing that. There have been various studies that people have done with with humans as far as, you know, can a human follow a trail, uh, you know, like a bloodhound um, <laughs> if, if you blindfold them and you, you know, you remove their other senses. Um, but, you know, can they just use the sense of smell and and follow it or, you know, people who have really themselves worked on their sense of smell such that, you know, can they find a particular book on the shelf based on how it smells or you know things like that? <laughs> I've never heard about can can people find a book on a shelf like that? How did that study uh, well, go? People have claimed to be, be able to do that at any rate. Uh, I, I don't know. I think pheromones too. I think it's fair to say that your attraction to someone else can be through the olfactory right there. You can be like, hey, this doesn't this doesn't seem right or whatever. And maybe that's one of those things where you're like, I can't quite put my finger on it. Maybe it's a sense of smell that, you know, even dogs when at airports and stuff like that are looking for drugs or it's interesting and, to think about. And of course, I, uh, I, as I suggest in the book, um, you know, there is uh, certainly a, a route to the human brain uh, that is through the sense of smell um, that, uh, you know, we, our brain is, um, you know, significantly affected by that chemical intake, much as um, many others in the animal kingdom are, and we don't necessarily think about it or realize it, but 
when faced with a um, technology developed by a race where sense of smell is is uh, you know is dominant, then uh, you know we may be susceptible to some of those interactions as well. Yeah, this gets me to this point. Like, you know, I was rereading the Genius Plague, and you know, I'll I'll, I'll also reference the 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 um, chemical quintessence, or I don't know, it's not a chemical, but you know, this idea of quintessence, and it gets me to this idea of alchemy. I see this like alchemical vein running through your books, where like people this this lead is being turned into gold and sometimes it's through a mushroom or sometimes it could be through a different drug but is that something that you have put into this books like this little bit of alchemy in there or how, how does that transfer through your through your work mm -hmm. yeah well um i mean certainly in quintessence uh, the book right. quintessence uh, you know alchemy is being used as a uh, as a kind of alternate science uh, you know and what i wanted to do in that book since it takes place in the 16th century was to say you know here are people working you know with the early scientific method coming to grips with you know what that as a source of truth and what it shows them and how it challenges their belief systems but i didn't want it to be where you as the you know modern person in the 21st century you're like yeah yeah but i know how it really works well <laughs> no you don't know how it really works <laughs> because you're discovering it right along with that you know they're using the experimental method to figure it out but but you don't know what the result is going to be because it, it it's not how it works for you so was you know borrowing from a lot of the ideas of alchemy in terms of uh, you know creating that um, you know alternate science concept and and how it was going to work in in that book um, and I guess uh, you know when, when thinking about you know all my books or or how I approach things there's a, you know it's it's not something that I thought of before like oh you know alchemy is in all my books um, you know you're you're bringing that up as a, as a new thought mm -hmm. but um, it I think it certainly is true that you know a lot of times I, I'm looking at um, you know maybe not an alternate science exactly, but um, thinking about how, um, how does the, uh, you know, how can I stretch the um, capabilities of uh, things that are true about, uh, you know, amazing things in the world? How can I pick out those things where you look at that and say, that's amazing, that really works, that really happens that way? Um, and, uh, you know, kind of stretch that out to be um, say, well, uh, how, how will that affect people? So, you know, in the genius plague, obviously you, you have the, uh, the drug then that, uh, is, is going around because the, uh, the, the, the fungus from the Amazon is, um, influencing people to, to, uh, spread it and to, um, you know, uh, get it around. And so, you know, just like those, uh, those ants that, um, are, are affected by fungus and, and caused to do things against their will, or, or even something like, uh, you know, rabies, um, there are, there are things in the world where, uh, diseases or, or fungal infections can, can affect the brain and can cause specific, uh, results that, that are helpful to the thing that is trying to be spread. And, uh, you know, so, you know, you have that fungus and then, you know, in the genius plague, it's the, uh, the, the chemical that, that uh, the, um, uh, the ancient dinosaur civilization used to record their memories. Um, and yet uh, that chemical, uh, just by the nature of, of how it works in the communicating the sense of smell, can be uh, used in our modern world uh, with humans, not just to, uh, you know, communicate those memories, but also to communicate dominance. 
Um, and so, yeah, there, there is, um, you know, kind of a recurring idea there, I think, in, in uh, you know, people taking what is possible and using it, uh, you know, for one thing, for power, um, because people do that. Um, and, and then also just that idea of a, of a substance that can affect our brains in, in ways that kind of gets at um, that interesting um, idea of, uh, you know, who am I really? I think a lot of my books do that. Who am I really? You know, and, and what choices are my own? Um, you know, even, you know, superposition or supersymmetry, you're talking about splitting into two different people. Um, you know, there's the version of me that does this, and then there's the version of me that goes off and does something else. And, and, and which of them is really me? You know, and am I what I choose? Am I what I, what I eat and drink or smell that, uh, that affects how I feel? You know, if I, if I drink a Coke, I'm, I'm a different person than if I don't, <laughs> you know, <laughs> whatever, uh, whatever it might be. Um, you know, so, so how do I define and get an idea of, of who I actually am? I think a lot of my books are um, are kind of wrestling with that um, slippery idea. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And you know, I, I do. I, I I don't. When I, I like to read a lot, and a lot of people will follow like the hero's journey or Nietzsche's Camel to the Child or whatever. But you have like a distinct set of rules that you follow that are different than that. They may not be the same rules you follow all the time, but it's different than something that's the hero's journey, or it's different than something that is a little bit more cookie cutter. Like I, I find novelty. I find something new in these books. And one thing that it seems to me that there's another vein, and maybe this is me just reading into it, but it seems to me that I get this idea like the there's a communication between the characters and the earth. There's almost like this other language that's being spoken. I don't know if I'm imagining that or, you know, it, it seems to me that, you know, in Genius Plague, here's a message from the like a like a symbiosis between the earth and the people. And I can look at that and see that in real life sometimes. And when I look at, you know, living memory, I see this symbiosis between people and creatures which is just another form of the earth in your philosophy. Do you see there being a language between the earth and the people that we can kind of communicate with each other? Mm -hmm. um, so uh, interesting, interesting question. <laughs> so, um, I, you know, I, I, I guess um, I, I don't necessarily see it exactly how you just described it, but I, I think a lot of it goes back um, to that idea of um, investigating and, and thinking about who we are. And not just, you know, I described, talked to, uh, already about, uh, you know, who I am as an individual and the choices that I make and, and what makes me me and what am I responsible to uh, for, but also, you know, who are we as, as humans, as a human race, just, um, you know, trying to, um, in various ways, uh, poke at and not necessarily answer, um, not necessarily trying to answer questions as much as to ask them and to raise thought and say, um, how are we different from the animals that inhabit the earth around us? Um, if there were animals that, uh, you know, that were not primates that evolved uh, sapient intelligence, what would they be like and how might they be different than, than us? To what extent are we influenced by um, the earth that we live in and uh, the, uh, you know, the how we evolved in our environment and the things that we um, have 
built around us as far as a, a human culture and the things that we um, just uh, you know live in in terms of the world that we inhabit, um, all of those are part of what makes us human. Um, and asking questions about uh, what uh, you know, how do we characterize that? What is that like? Where did we come from? Where are we going? You know, some of those big questions about the universe. I, I don't necessarily want to want my fiction to be. Um, answering those questions in any kind of pathways. There, there aren't easy answers to those questions, um, but to, to ask those questions and get people thinking in, in those ways, I, I think that's a lot of what I'm trying to do. Yeah, and I, I think you do it really well. And that's really where the gold is, is getting people to come up with their own answers and inspiring them to use their own imagination to create their own stories. Because once it seems like a, the, the pebble in the pond like you've thrown this pebble into the pond and your books are creating this ripple effect that inspire other people to create more fiction and create a better world that way, you know? And I, I'm real thankful for that. And I, I was just curious. I remember a while back you and I had shared an email about a mushroom that was actually giving off language. Do you remember that email? It was quite some time ago. Quite some time ago. Mushroom that was giving off language. Um, I, so I, I'm not sure I remember exactly what you're talking about, but um, there there are um, you know a number of <laughs> when I was uh, when I was in in my mushroom phase, <laughs> yeah, yeah, in my mycology phase, and you know all sorts of amazing things. But uh, yeah, I mean there there are a, a lot of ways in which uh, you look at a, a forest ecosystem, and um, it, you know a lot of it is you know undergirded by um, all of these you know the mycelia, the fungus that is underneath the ground which is really hard for people to study. Like it's really challenging to get down under that topsoil layer and say, just what are they actually doing and trading chemically? Um, but there's uh, a lot of studies that, that show um, some pretty uh, significant sophistication of chemical communication uh, where you have these, these nets of mycelia that are communicating, you know, hey, this tree over here, um, you know, needs a little more nutrients or moisture and, and, and will actually funnel um, you know, some of that, uh, uh, those nutrients from, uh, you know, one place in the forest to another place in the forest to help various parts of the forest thrive, because, you know, that in turn helps the fungus itself to, to thrive and to live and to spread. Um, and, you know, and there's a back and forth there. You have, uh, you know, you have trees too that are, um, you know, giving, you know, I, I guess, willingly giving up of their own uh, energy that they've uh, gotten from the sun in order to feed that mycelial uh, net in order for their children, <laughs> the, uh, you know, the, 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 the acorns or the seeds or, you know, whatever it is that they drop to have a, you know, lush place where they can grow and so they can continue their own genetics. Um, and there's a real give and take there that can get very sophisticated and involve communicating across sometimes really long distances. Um, in, in this chemical way that we're only just beginning to understand just the tiniest bit, but that suggests a, you know, a level of, of problem solving sapience yeah. that, that, you know, is just kind of mind blowing when you try to apply it to, um, you know, uh, fungus and trees, um, <laughs> and yet really is rather sophisticated and, and interesting, but, but, you know, completely unlike uh, any kind of, you know, thinking as we think of it. Um, but but very complex and interesting. Yeah. yeah, that's a great answer. Thank you for that. Sometimes when I look at the root structure, like you can go outside and just look at any tree or whatever, but sometimes you'll see that root structure and you can see the mycelium that's wrapped around it and 
kind of helping it provide better connections. And then I've recently looked at some work coming out of John Hopkins where they showed people who are taking mushrooms and an fMRI. And it's so eerily similar to see the way in which the root structure looks like a neural network. And I'm like, wow, maybe the mycelium is working the same way. But this brings me to the idea of chemical communication. You know, the, 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 what you just spoke about, mycelium act using a chemical communication, seems to pop up in the new book, Living Memory, which is an amazing book by David Walton. It seems to pop up in that book as well. So this idea of chemical communication seems to be something that's been on your mind for a, for a little bit now. And how are those two things related between the new book and mycelium, or are they related at all? Yeah, uh, I mean, I guess, um, uh, you know, <laughs> I, I, I just have my brain and it has the inputs that come into it and, and uh, you know, feed my thought process. Um, and so, you know, things that I think are cool and excited are, are, and that I'm excited about, uh, you know, I guess can, can tend to come back around in, 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 uh, in different ways. But, um, but yeah, it's just, um, it, it, it is interesting to think of, um, you know, our, our brains in, in their little box um, you know, our brains live in this little box in the dark, right? You yes. know, our brains don't actually, you know, experience anything. Um, we, we just have these inputs that come into our, into our brain in its dark little box um, that it interprets uh, based on, uh, you know, different things. And those inputs can come in, in a variety of ways, but, uh, you know, it's not it's not light, it's not sound, it's not, uh, you know, it's not the... Um, you know, impact of touch with other things. That's not what's coming into the brain. Uh, you know, it's those electrical impulses. Um, it's the, uh, you know, chemical interactions of our, our uh, you know, flesh that is, uh, you know, what we actually experience that is an interpretation of what's around us. So, you know, lots of ways for that input to come in. Um, and obviously in the genius plague, I explored that in various ways because you have a, a, a fungal mediator in there that is um, influencing how that uh, input is coming in and, and how it's getting interpreted. Um, you know, and in this case, I, I'm just, you know, thinking of a different species and, and how they might, um, you know, interact with their senses in a different way and, and thus produce a very different brain and a very different way of um, experiencing the world than, than we would in their own little brain in its dark little box. Okay, so this makes me think, when, when, when you say its own little brain in a dark little box, this makes me think of like a computer like it's it's not really like it's its own little brain in a dark little box, you know. And, it, and I start getting into this idea of like, wow, maybe we're the chemical messenger for the computer. You know, have, <laughs> have you gone down that rabbit hole of like this whole sentient computer thing? This whole what did you say? The whole the whole like sentient computer thing. Like, oh 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 yeah. <laughs> well. Um... <laughs> Well, that, I mean, that gets us to, to, to three laws lethal, which is the, you know, the, the, the book we haven't talked about yet. <laughs> right. Let's talk about it. <laughs> um, so, yeah, three laws lethal was, uh, was my previous book from uh, from two years ago. Um, and and it, yeah, it is a, a whole exploration of, you know, obviously a lot of people in the past have done various uh, books thinking about artificial intelligence. Um, and the very title of it, Three Laws Lethal, is a, uh, you know, a, a reference back to Three Laws Safe, uh, you know, uh, Asimov's Three Laws, and, and is a interaction with that. And, uh, you know, and, and the book actually has um, dozens of references 
um, some uh, some obvious and some not so obvious to all sorts of uh, previous science fictional works uh, dealing with the topic. Um, but yeah, I I, uh, I take uh, I, I bring my own take to it from uh, the the perspective of or you know the situation of self driving cars and developing um, uh, in uh, you know AI to uh, to run self driving cars and um, how a mind might be built up in that context, you know, just thinking through like, okay, I, I don't really think that the computers that, you know, that I have on my desk or whatever are really in danger of, of suddenly turning around and, and uh, you know, coming alive and talking to me. But if that were to happen, how would it happen? How might that actually in a, in a somewhat realistic way, um, you know, come to place and, uh, you know, and how might um, that that brain develop? And so, a, a lot of that book is a, um, you know, as I said with a lot of my books, it's an exploration of of who we are ultimately. But it's uh, an exploration of that through this question of, um, you know, how realistically might a um, an AI develop um, such that it is a a person in its own right? Yeah, that was awesome. All of these books. Everybody who's listening, you should do yourself a huge favor and just go to David Walton's website and just start picking them all up. You know, maybe uh, you every individual probably have their own favorite. <clears throat> I'm curious, like, so before before this book came out, Living Memory, you did have Three Laws Lethal. And in between, before this came out, there was this whole idea of the, the Google operator and lambda were you familiar with with that when it came out did you hear about that news story how this gentleman thought hey look here's lambda and it is conscious it is it is something that is conscious what did you what was your take on that yeah you're talking about uh lemoyne um yes yes blaine or blaine or blake or or i don't remember his first name something like that lemoyne yes um so uh yeah it's it's uh it's pretty interesting i mean essentially i I think of that as being the the eliza effect which um if, if you uh, you know, people know what I'm talking about there. It's, uh, you know, w- way back in the day with early, uh, you know, what you might call AI, the, you know, the very simple uh, kind of bot that was, you know, essentially just, you know, repeating back what you said in a question, like your therapist might do. You know, I'm feeling sad. You're feeling sad? Uh, tell me more. <laughs> you know, it's essentially the, the level of interaction that it had. Um, and yet the uh, the person who, uh, who wrote that, um, the, uh, there was, uh, you know, somebody there, uh, assistant or somebody, I'm probably, you know, mangling the story somewhat, but, um, you know, whose name was Eliza or, or no, the, the, the program was named Eliza, wasn't it? Anyway, as I said, I'm mangling the story, but the, the point is the Eliza effect refers to that ability for humans to read into um, the, uh, you know, to anthropomorphize this thing that they are having a conversation with and, uh, you know, assign to it a lot more uh, autonomy and intelligence that it in fact actually has mm-hmm. because as humans we're, we're very good at doing that um, whether it be with our um, pet dogs or <laughs> or with computers um, and so yeah absolutely um, you know with lambda and and uh, Lemoyne you know the, you, you read the whole um, uh, you know transcript of his interaction with it and you know from one from one st- you know on the one side it's pretty amazing I mean absolutely the, the the ability of uh, these, you know, large language uh, um, AIs to um, uh, to come up with very reasonable, believable sounding conversations and, and put together these responsive uh, responses. It's amazing. Um, the The problem is that um, you know he was getting in, getting out of it what he was putting into it, 
And if you had instead asked that very same uh, bot, um, you know, hey, I was um, I, I was on my spaceship today with my uh, flamingo sidekick, and we were uh, you know flying around Venus. Um, what what, what uh, do you, do you remember uh, our our experiences with that? It would have very gladly, you know, uh, gave given you, um, you know, very believable and, and interesting responses based on all your adventures with your flamingo sidekick in space. Um, it, it doesn't differentiate. It's just really, really good at putting together language around the topic that you want to interact with it about. So when it interact with, acted with it about, uh, you know, topics like, uh, you know, self awareness and God and you know what it feels like to be a person it could respond very convincingly. Yeah, it was a fascinating time and it, it, it just created so much buzz out there. And I like what you said about people getting out of something, what they put into it, because I think that's a lot of life. I think that's a lot of the artificial intelligence. And I think that's a lot of relationships and even your job where you get out of what you put into it. But it's it's a fascinating idea. Another avenue that I I think that you've kind of been exploring, at least in some of your tweets and stuff is this idea of artificially generated artwork and that stuff seems pretty amazing yeah it is pretty amazing uh, and, and and really just i mean you look at just a couple years ago and you know what was possible was nothing like what is possible now it's just exploded and and really just this year has exploded in in amazing ways um, how you can just put in these very simple prompts and and get back um, extraordinary results. Um, not always the extraordinary results you were exactly looking for, right. but but things that you're like, wow, I, I wish I was thinking of that because that's pretty cool. Um, so uh, so yeah, I mean it's it's a very interesting and and you know controversial technology, of course, because you know there are questions of you know is it going to put uh, artists out of business and uh, you know is it um, is it truly art you know is it is it uh, you know should we be appreciating the results of uh, these you know mindless machines that are producing artwork and uh, you know there's there's a lot of different different thoughts and of course you know every technology um, changes things that changes how people make their living and it, it changes what's possible it brings uh, you know more power to some people like you know, me without, without art education and without uh, art experience, it gives me more power to create things that I wouldn't otherwise be able to create. Um, on the other hand, it, you know, potentially takes away from some people uh, the living that they can make, creating things that, you know, I previously couldn't make, but they could. Um, so, um, uh, you know, I don't think it will eliminate uh, the idea of art um, because people still are going to appreciate um, what humans are capable of doing and what humans can communicate through the work that they did. There's a human connection to be made there that people want. On the other hand, there's a lot of commercial art and there's a lot of things that people do with art that they don't care about the connection. They just want the effect. Um, and I think you'll see a, a, a lot of that um, changing as AI art becomes uh, you know, more and more. Are, uh, able to fill those needs. Yeah, I, I agree. I it's such a fascinating time to be alive, and I, I, I see it as a tool to be used. And I think it's opened so many doors for so many people to maybe get their first foot through a door of a field they've always wanted to be in, or allow them to see new landscapes, or uh, allows them to explore their own imagination. And I think real 
like I, I bet you we both know some pretty talented artists and those artists that can draw well or paint well, or it's not just that they can do that. It's that they see the world differently. They have a different perspective. So it may take away a little bit, but it's never going to diminish them because those people are gifted in so many ways. I'm, I'm curious since we're since we're on the topic of AI and stuff, you know, I see this world of, I, I heard a theory and I, I, I really want to get your opinion on this. So the idea is automation and people were talking about how automation is this and automation is that. But the theory that I heard is that if you're, if the room you're in, if I took David, if I took out all the screens in your room, your phone, your computer, your television, that room would look a lot like a room in 1950. So is all this technology that we have, all this technology that we've been promised, is it a false promise? Is that maybe why we're at where we're at is that we have bet the farm on technology and it never showed up. It seems like they're always 20 years away. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that. Well, um, I mean, I guess it depends on uh, what, uh, what you thought you were promised. <laughs> That's a great answer. <laughs> if, you were, uh, if, if you're still waiting for your flying car to get to work, then, uh, you know, you're, you're still disappointed. Um, but uh, you know, if what you were looking for was uh, the, you know the promise of being able to um, ask the device in your pocket for any uh, any piece of human knowledge that you might like to know and have it answer you, um, you've got that. <laughs> um, so um, you know there there are you know many many ways in which technology has changed the world, um, changed human lives and experiences, and I, I think. Basically, all technology is is dual use in a way, um, and and what I you know obviously can have lots of uses. But what I mean by the dual use is is you know for good or for ill, for um, uh, you know for uh, violent means or for means that um, accumulate power or for uh, ways that um, help people and empower people who are powerless, etc. You know, basically every technology um, is going to um, you know, have that uh, that change in in a way that can be you know used for good and ill, and will be used for good and ill. You know, it's not like, well, how will we use this technology? Will we only use it for good? Well, no, it, we, we will use it for evil as well. We will, um, and so uh, you know, as technology advances, um, does it make the world better? Well, in some ways it does, and in some ways it doesn't. Does it make human beings better? No, probably not. Uh, you know, <laughs> so, so um, you know the fact that you've given human beings, you know, individual human beings, more power to accomplish things means they can accomplish some amazing things and have. Um, it also means that they can uh, accomplish some pretty awful things um, and have and will. So you know, it's it's always a. I think it's always a double-edged sword. Okay, staying in that vein, I was. If, if we if we reach way back into the into the Phaedrus, into Plato's Phaedrus, you know, they talk about language and it being I think it, I'm going to paraphrase this. I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's I don't know. When, when do I get to talk to David Walton? So let me just throw this out here. So, you know, I think it was um, Toth and he's speaking. Toth is speaking to his mentor or the guy that is in charge. I know that bitch would And he says. Toth, my paragon of inventors, what is it that you bring me? And he says, my Lord, I bring you the technology of writing. 
this particular technology is going to make mankind better than he's ever been before. For now, he no longer needs to memorize. For now, he no longer needs to, to go through the hardships of experience. He'll be able to record his thoughts for the previous generations to learn. And the Lord says to Toth, Toth, my paragon of inventors, you are so intelligent. However, the technology that you have created will do the opposite for mankind. It will not make him better. It will make him worse for he no longer needs to have the experiences. He will forget what he went through and no longer be able to recall why he did the things he did. So the premise of that story is that technology, for everything it gives us, it takes something away. For everything that it makes, something atrophies. And if you look at the way, I mean, you can see the the way in which people from World War I would write letters to their loved ones and have this beautiful flowing handwriting and express themselves. And I think there's something to be said about writing and getting your thoughts on paper that allows you to communicate more effectively. So if we can take this idea, I think even Marshall McLuhan talks about how the printing press may have change the way people interpret ideas from hot and cold mediums. If you, if you are not, if you have a, a medium like television that gives you your ideas instead of reading something and interpreting for yourself, these ideas of technology have taken away from mankind in some ways. Do you think that today's modern computers may be, you've already said that in some ways they're good, some ways they're bad, but do you think that maybe we are losing a little bit of what it means to be human by participating so much in the digital world? Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's certainly an interesting question and a really big question. And, and uh, you know, McLuhan certainly had plenty of ideas yeah, about yeah. technology. But, but um, yeah, I, I mean, the, I, I think the, the question, has, the answer has to be, uh, you know, yes and no in, yeah. in, in a lot of ways, because, uh, you know, there are, you know, yes, absolutely. Um, you know, everything that technology gives us in a, in a sense takes away. Um, because, uh, you know, if I have the power to do something um, more easily or more readily or more powerfully or to impact more people, I'm not going to do it the old way anymore. And so I lose my ability to do it the old way. Um, and so the question has to be, well, what was the value of the old way? Because, you know, obviously, uh, you know, if people aren't doing it the old way anymore, it's because they'd rather do it the new way. Um, so, um, you know, so I don't, uh, you know, yearn to go back to the days when we had to wash our clothes by hand in the river. Um, that is, that's not something that I feel is a, a lack in my life that is uh, robbing my life of the, the quality that it could have if I had to, uh, you know, spend a lot of my um, time, um, you know, just surviving. You know, the fact that a, a lot of the things that um, are required to simply survive are taken care of by a combination of technology and the organization of our, uh, our, our civilization um, means that I can do things like write books and read them. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of value in, in those things to say that, you know, we are empowered to be able to choose um, how we spend our time and, and what we pour our, our energies into. And there are still people who, uh, you know, learn to uh, write beautiful flowery letters by hand. And there are yeah. still people who, who do, uh, you know, exquisite carpentry work, even though, you know, a lot of that is not in demand anymore or, you know, whatever it is, that's still an option available to you. And many people don't. Um, and so, you know, are there ways in which you say, well, 
you know, you have this nostalgia of saying, well, what wasn't it better when people when when more people could do this or more people did it that way? And, you know, to a certain extent, it, it, it is or was, you know, there is a loss. There is a feeling of, you know, there, there was a, a, a beauty in something that's things that's gone. But I think it's also very easy for people to look back and, and see the beauty and nostalgia and forget about the the work and the pain and the hardship and the, you know, the things that you couldn't do um, because, uh, you know, you, you just, you just feel the loss of, of that thing. And, and, but are you actually going to choose to go back and do it that way? Some people will, but most people won't. Yeah, that's a great answer. It is easy to look back and romanticize that which you have heard about or that which you as an, or me as an individual look back and, think about and and maybe that's what inspires maybe that's maybe that can be used to inspire just as much as it is to retire the ideas but david i i am i want to be mindful of your time we're coming up on an hour how are you doing on time you got some projects you got you got to talk to or do you have a little bit more time um i'm enjoying this yeah me too okay <laughs> we'll keep this dream alive then <laughs> okay so who are if you had to pick between um, let's see, Captain Kirk or Captain Picard. Who would you pick? <laughs> <laughs> well, I, um, I, I have to, um, I have to start with the heresy that uh, I have never been all that much of a Trekkie. Um, I, I have, I have certainly, uh, you know, seen plenty of, uh, plenty of episodes, especially from the older ones. Um, but I've not tracked with all of the the newer shows. Um, that that hasn't necessarily been my, uh, you know, science fiction of choice. Um, but I'd have to say definitely Picard, uh, <laughs> as a uh, as a character and, and and also as an actor. Um, just uh, uh, in in my thinking, uh, you know, but far superior of, uh, of a, um, a character actor and, uh, and an interesting person. Um, so what I'm hearing is that you're not going to be translating living memory into Klingon anytime soon. Is that true? Well, it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny because, um, uh, I mean, no, not really, but, um, I, I, I am, uh, uh, friends with uh, Lawrence Schoen, who is the, uh, the, the founder of the, um, the, the National Klingon Society. I'm probably getting the name wrong, but uh, he is actually, um, you know, behind the translation of quite a few books into Klingon, um, including his own, but, uh, you know, a, a lot of classic works into Klingon and, uh, you know, is the founder of a society of people who have, uh, you know, advanced and learned to read and published Klingon books and all of that. So um, it, if I wanted to get it published, to get, to get it translated into Klingon, I, I know the guy I'd talk to. <laughs> you know, I bet you, I bet if, if you had a spot on your website where you would, for a fee, have your books translated into Klingon, I bet you you'd have plenty of people <laughs> that would sign up. I would be one of them just to have it. Yeah. You know? I'm not even sure I can. Let me shift gears, though, and talk about <laughs> – so crazy. Okay, let me shift gears and talk about the meteor that, that wiped out the dinosaurs. You know, it, it, there's so much that happened there. And, you know, I, I am curious as to – you know, when I think of that meteor, for some reason I think of Francis Crick and I think of life itself. I think I must have read this somewhere where – you know, why wouldn't the idea of panspermia happen? And if it can happen, might it have happened when an asteroid hit our planet? And might 
I mean, if, if I'm going way out on the what if barrel, like, wouldn't that have been a great time for this particular piece of DNA or this seed or whatever it was to almost impregnate the mammals of some kind or infect the mammals via a spore or something like that? It kind of seems like it fits, but what's your take on meteors hitting the earth and maybe bringing life to the earth? Yeah. Well, I mean, it's certainly uh, it's certainly a fun concept to consider. And 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 if you want a good uh, a good possibility for panspermia, yeah, you know, fungus fungus is certainly an, an excellent candidate. Yes. Uh, right. Because uh, you know fungal spores are are able to survive um, in quite harsh uh, situations. Um, and uh, and in fact, we you know there are uh, I mean both bacteria and and fungal growth that is you know on Voyager and, uh, you know, other right. spacecraft that we have sent out. So we, we're generally trying to be as careful as possible to eradicate such things uh, before we send it out because we don't want to be the, the agents of panspermia somewhere else. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it, you know, but um, that, uh, you know, that idea it, it is uh, certainly a possible one. Um, it, it certainly, uh, you know, when you come down to it, seems like a fairly unlikely one, given the vastness of the galaxy and um, the, uh, you know, the, the distances to be traveled and, uh, you know, the amount of life that we have thus far discovered um, anywhere about our own planet. Um, but, uh, you know, it from a from a scientific standpoint, it is not an impossible concern. Um, and, and, and when it's not impossible, that means we can write stories about it, right? <laughs> that's right. <laughs> so we can imagine what would happen if, um, and, and that's often a fun thing to do. Oh. Yeah, I, I, I really enjoy it. And it, it just seems that, you know, the, there's something so cyclical about um, our life, our daily routine and the world we live in, you know, wh whether it's the, Earth spinning around its axis, spinning around the sun, the sun spinning around the galaxy, the galaxy spinning around the universe. Like there seems to be this idea of the cycle that permeates not only everything in us, but everything that we do. And if we can, if we just take that particular pattern of cycles and we apply that to, you, you know, um, collisions with the earth, it makes me think that this happens quite often, you know, like we probably get hit. If you look at the moon, if you look at Jupiter, like if you look at all these planets, they're all pocked. Like it just seems like we are at some point in time going to get hit again. And that's that's kind of one thing I was thinking about when I read your book. Is that something that you thought about when, when you were writing the book? Yeah, I mean, um, that there's a sense in which you'd say we're due, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For for a uh, for a big impact, um, but um, but yeah, I mean, I I think some of what um, I'm exploring in the in the trilogy at large, and and uh, you know, just to be clear, the, the, there is not a uh, the, there's not an asteroid impact that is uh, you know um, for for going to wipe out humanity in the book, um, but <laughs> there's plenty of uh, plenty of stories that have done that, um, but uh, or or you know had that threat. Um, but um, the the idea of uh, extinction, the idea of you know, there's something really tragic about um, the the story of the dinosaurs as we look back, um, because you know there's uh, you know so many different species and such variety and you know such fascinating forms of life, um, and then so much of it just you know gone in an instant. Um, 
and uh, you know, to you know, I kind of upped the tragedy there a little bit by um, having you know, right at the very last sliver of the end of the Cretaceous, which of course they wouldn't have known was the end of the Cretaceous. <laughs> uh, they have you know this this burgeoning of intelligence and civilization, and then uh, you know it's snuffed out. Um, and so, uh, you know, part of what the book series is doing um, is uh, is considering, you know, that experience and looking back and and you know, kind of experiencing that through the the memories and minds of of, of those people, um, and uh, and then um, you know, having to come to terms with um, the uh, you know dangers there are to our own civilization, um, and thinking of uh, you know how easily, in a sense, um, uh, you know we could be snuffed out, and uh, you know, uh, learning from that that experience uh, of theirs in, in thinking about ourselves. There's a you know a certainly a comparison being being done between uh, our civilization and theirs um, in in a lot of different ways in, in the books. Yeah, there, there really is. And it's it's really well done. I, I hope everybody goes and checks it out. Let me just, for people who may not have seen the cover here, it's Living Memory by David Walton. You should check it out. Speaking of catastrophes, speaking of, of you know, things that have happened in the past, have you ever given any sort of thought to like the idea of catastrophism, like Charles Hapgood's The Path of the Poles or Emmanuel Velikovsky's ideas about how you know, we have cycles of cataclysms that happen and that is is kind of the alternative to evolution. An alternative to evolution. What do you mean by an alternative to evolution? So, so in, maybe evolution is not the right word. Like instead of it being like continental drift, it's this idea that the planet goes through cycles of catastrophic events where, you know, whether we either get we get hit by um we get hit by a a comet or we go through we go through seasons in the galactic year that have like galactic hurricanes or something like that like you know doesn't it kind of make sense if if we have seasons on our planet why wouldn't we have seasons as we go through the galactic year and might the according to um like oh god I hope I don't butcher but according I think it was Velikovsky talking about how you know, we can come into contact with other solar systems that kind of cross the streams or a little bit. And, you know, maybe our solar system was once, you know, a binary star system with Jupiter and Saturn being the suns. And we came into contact with this solar system. And that's why you see the whole chaos that was there. And it's these kind of catastrophes that shape the planet instead of maybe um, Charles Darwin's idea of what shapes the planet. Well, um, you know, we certainly have, uh, uh, you know, a, a number of different catastrophes to look back at, yeah, some, of which, yeah. some of which we have a, a pretty good idea of how they happened and, and some of which we have, you know, less of a clear idea of, of uh, you know, what caused it and, and how they happened. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly lots of ways in which catastrophe can happen. Um, the, uh, I, I guess one of the, the big... Um, uh, unanswered questions or, or hard to answer questions is the effect of those catastrophes on life. Mm. Um, you know, so, uh, you know, if you just take the, um, the uh, uh, end Cretaceous asteroid as a, as an example, uh, you know, it, 
cleared out the non-avian dinosaurs. And after that, you see, uh, you know, mammals coming to the fore and, uh, you know, diversifying, taking up some of those, uh, you know, large uh, land animal uh, niches and creating new niches and, and, you know, all that kind of development. And so people kind of think of it in a simplistic way as like, you know, okay, the, the asteroids cleared out the dinosaurs and then the mammals came. Uh, but, you know, mammals were, were living for the entire time that the dinosaurs were alive. Mammals were, were developing their uniquely mammalian traits. Um, and so, uh, you know, there's some question of, well, what if the asteroid didn't land? You know, would, would we be, uh, you know, peopled now by uh, Triceratops and, and Tyrannosaurus? Well, I mean, those species wouldn't be around anymore. Species don't last that long. Um, you know, would the mammals have, uh, you know, ended up taking the four anyway, and we would just still have a few, uh, you know, d d dinosaur descendant species in our in our zoos? Um, <laughs> would, uh, you know, and, and, and we would just look a little different? <laughs> um, or, or would it be, you know, do catastrophes make a dramatic, obviously they're dramatic and they make a dramatic change for those particular <laughs> species living right then. Um, but is that, you know, considering the amount of convergent evolution there is, you know, how many times have hooves developed and flight developed and eyes developed and, uh, you know, at, at like all of the different um, things that, you know, you see happening again and again, uh, would they just happen again in a different way or um, do those catastrophes cause, uh, you know, dramatic changes in what would have been? And of course, we can never rewind the clock and see what would have happened. So we can never really answer that question effectively. Um, but, you know, it's interesting to, to think about. Yeah, it's super fun. I, I spend a lot of, a lot of time just in my own imagination thinking about these things. And, you know, I sometimes I wonder, let me ask you this. Do you ever wonder about like the constellations and like, like, Sometimes I think, and maybe this is an overactive imagination, but you know, when when you look at like um, the age of Aquarius, there's a lot of literature that talks about the age of Aquarius being a time of floods. And I, the reason I got to this is that there is a, I don't, I think it was, um, what is it? At Fomenko wrote a series of books called History, Fiction, or Science, and they're really fun to read. And the way he gets to his idea of what happened in the past is by looking at constellations in the past. And he uses biblical texts to kind of triangulate where people were telling their story and then what's happening astronomically in the stars. And he uses this measurement of moon eclipses, particularly parameter D. I guess parameter D is this mathematical problem that says, hey, the moon always has an eclipse every eight years at this time, how come it didn't happen for 40 years? This is a weird anomaly. And he's like, yeah, it's not really an anomaly. It's just that people didn't record it because this happens more than, this is very accurate. You know, when we look at time, here is this thing that always happens. And so in his books, he talks about the age of Aquarius, like, okay, isn't it, isn't it an interesting coincidence that here is this constellation of a giant pouring water onto the earth? Doesn't that kind of seem like a flood's coming? Wouldn't that be a great way to tell the people in the future, hey, look up, there's a giant flood coming when this happens. It's the age of Aquarius. And like that kind of stuff just gets my imagination running. And it's fun for me to think about. <laughs> Have you ever like thought about maybe the constellations being signs of what's to come? <laughs> um, well, 
I can't say that I have, so <laughs> we'll, we'll start with that. Okay. <laughs> um, so, um, it, you know, that, that seems to be putting uh, a, a, a tremendous amount of, uh, of, of knowledge and, and prescience into the minds of people who came up with the constellations uh, way back. <laughs> But um, I, I mean, I, I, I will give you the, uh, the the interest from a you know from a science fictional standpoint of uh, you know there, that um, that idea of um, you know passing on these messages to the to the distant future uh, you know and things like that is uh, is is pretty fun and, and there have been some some interesting books in the past that have yeah. uh, you know taken that idea. Um, and of course, you know, to some extent, you're uh, you're referring to, to to living memory because um, you know when when it goes back to uh, you know the, the the dinosaurs and when Kit is you know in this hallucination, it's like ah, oh, there's you know it looks like the, you know the, the Cretaceous period, and he sees the constellations, and he's like, wait, and and he goes and, and looks up and figures out, and he's like, wait, th those are actually the constellations from the Cretaceous period. Right, it, right. This isn't a hallucination. This is this is actually a, a memory, a, a vision of what it actually looked like then from somebody's perspective. And that's how, that's how we can tell that it's that that's what's yes. going on. Yeah, I thought that was I thought that was fascinating how he was able to go back and then come back and verify by looking at the app that showed him exactly what it was like that. That that's an amazing that is an amazing sort of way to get the to get the individual involved in it you know i i, I admired that part and it, there's something to be said about our history with hallucinations you know whether it's the the um people in times of greece going to see the muses or people in different states like mystics mystic traditions throughout time there's there's something that pulls us in to someone who can see the future. And I, I like the way in which that the kit was able to, what was it? No, it was prey that was able to do it. Right. Well, it was, it was kit it was that was seeing them. the past, yeah. right? He was, That's he, right. He, he was inhabiting the memory of prey. Yes. So yeah. 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 Have you ever in any way inhibited the memory of somebody else? Uh, inhabited the memory of somebody else. Uh, <laughs> like I got, got to well, see from their vision. You know what I mean? <laughs> right. Well, well, I'll, I'll, I guess, uh, you know, I take a lot of your questions and I, uh, you know, yeah, you just, just tell you what I, what it makes me think of, but, uh, <laughs> you know, it makes me think of, uh, you know, to a large degree, what the, what the purpose of fiction is. Right. Okay. So, yeah. you know, when, when you're writing fiction, uh, you're more specifically when you're reading fiction, you are inhabiting somebody else's mind, you know, you are right. being put into the mind and experiences of somebody else, which is something we can't do. Right. You know, like I, I'm always only ever me. I only see things from my perspective. I only live my life. I only see out of my eyes and experience my own senses, but by reading fiction, I can, you know, for a time, especially if it's, you know, written well, inhabit the, the, the senses, the experiences, the thinking, the point of view of, of somebody else, um, which is one of the things, uh, what, kind of one of the great things that I think fiction brings to the world is, uh, you know, that idea to inhabit somebody else's memory or somebody else's perspective um, by, uh, you know, and, and thus being able to understand um, all of these other, you know, conscious people around us who are not me. <laughs> yeah, I guess a better way to put it would be to be able to share 
a vision with somebody else. You know, it, it's it 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 seems like that's when we're most closely bonded when we experience with something. Okay, here's another one for you. Do you think that that is maybe what rituals do? Like if you look back to, say, the times of Eleusis, or even if you go and watch a great play or something like that, the ritual of sharing experience with somebody else, do you think that that is something that is almost... Do you think that that is something that is lost in today's world is this idea of rituals, this idea of sharing real experiences, not only maybe with someone else, but with the group, because it, you, you don't see it the same way, but you see the same thing. But, and sometimes you can get the same feeling. Like that's it. That seems to me to be something that fiction does for people is even though you and I are in different parts of the world, we could read the same book. And though we don't have the same image in our mind, we are aware of a similar feeling about that story. Do you, mm -hmm. would, you say, would you say that maybe that's kind of what good fiction does too, is allows people to, it's almost like a ritual. Would you say it's almost like a ritual? Hmm. Well, I, I, I certainly never thought of it that way. Um, I, I mean, I can see to some extent, you know, like if, uh, if, if you are, um, you know, saying a liturgy in church and it's the same liturgy that people said a thousand years ago or, or however long when yeah. that was created and you feel a kinship with those people of a thousand years ago that you never met because you are, uh, you know, avowing the same things, saying the same things and thus, uh, you know, part of a movement that has been, uh, you know, uh, you know, since that earlier time. Um, you know, the, I guess there's there's a lot of degree to which, um, you know, humans want to be part of something that is larger than themselves. Um, that's that's part of what we're, uh, you know, kind of universally motivated to do. And we want to have connections with people uh, about those things. And so, uh, you know, shared experience is, is a big part of what um, we we want as a as a species. And, you know, and certainly books are, are a way that we do that. You know, I I love talking about, you know, I love recommending books to people. Yeah. I love talking to people about the books that we're that we're both reading because, uh, you know, that's a that's a shared experience. Um, you know, it's a lot of the way that I end up, uh, you know, relating to my kids is through all the books that that were, you know, the stories that we are um, uh, experiencing uh, together, or you know, that we've both experienced. That I can say, yeah, I loved when that happened, and you know, you have kind of think the same thoughts, have the same ideas, and and that experience something together. Yeah, that's an awesome answer. I, I, I enjoy it. If we were going to extend the world in which these dinosaurs live in living memory, what are, what are some of the, like, in a lot of societies, it seems that religion kind of underpins or at least an idea of religion underpins a lot of societies today. When I read this book, The Living Memory, are there some, even though it may not be specifically stated in the book, are there some rituals that this particular group does that bonds them together? Hmm. Um, interesting. <laughs> it, uh, yeah. I, I mean, it, it, uh, it, it makes me um, think of, I, I don't know if you're familiar with Noah Harari's uh, books. Yeah, I like have. Yes. Homo, Homo yeah. Um, and, and Homo Deus and uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, one, one of his big ideas is, uh, you know, that sense that um, that idea that storytelling is, uh, you know, one of the um, one of the chief things that makes humans humans, you know, that that uh, has, uh, you know, and looks at, 
you know, religion looks at just the organization of society and the ability to, uh, you know, say that, uh, you know, we have all kinds of constructs in society that are, are not real. They don't exist, you know, like the McDonald's corporation doesn't exist. It's not a thing. It's a, it's this story that we all tell each other about, um, <laughs> about how we should react and, and interact, uh, you know, as far as that's concerned, we all follow the same story. Um, but, um, it, you know, so I, I would think that that is something that would, um, you know, probably be true of any, uh, any sapient society, any, uh, you know, even something as uh, dramatically different in experience as, uh, you know, the dinosaurs that we're talking about, or, or as an octopus intelligence, or, you know, whatever yeah. it may be, where, where uh, you know, just the mind and experience and, and environment is so utterly different. And yet, I would think that ability to tell stories, and thus, uh, you know, shape experience around, um, a an idea of of meaning of purpose of a shared meaning and purpose of a shared um, you know like you're going to organize a million people to do something together right they all need to have a shared story or a similar story of what it is that we're doing together um, and thus you know I believe that when you have this amount of money in the bank that means something to me because we all believe it um, and so you know in order to organize people at the scale that's required for civilization um you know i would think you know if we're thinking about our dinosaurs yeah they would have they would have stories they would have religion they would have concepts of um society and rituals rituals associated with them that would enable their society to work together in uh you know lockstep not necessarily that there aren't conflicts because there are always conflicts but um you know that you're coming from the same uh, place in terms of how to get everybody to work together in in what a constitutes a civilization. Yeah, that's a great answer. I I got a part. I just want to say one note on Harari. Like, I don't I don't know if I love that guy. I feel like his first book just ripped off Gun Germs and Steel. Like, I, I read it and I'm like, you just copied this book, man. You took a national bestseller and you copied it, man. You got all these people <laughs> to buy it. But that's neither here nor there. I I wanted to say that uh so. On, on the concept of the underpinnings of, 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 of religion or society or telling stories, I see this, and I don't know how the second or third book is going to go. I'm really excited to read them. But I see this <clears throat> almost passing on from the dinosaurs until the women characters of the story. It's like almost, I can almost see them becoming dominant. I can almost see them becoming something. So it's like this, there's like this almost interspecies sort of of um, ritual that's happening between the two species right there I'm I'm excited man to read the next two and and um, what what was it that made you decide that this story should be a trilogy yeah so um, I, I mean as you kind of point out from that a lot of my stories aren't right I have a, yeah. a, a number of uh, standalone books. And in general, I tend to gravitate towards standalone books because of, you know, what I described at the very beginning that I get excited about, you know, some idea that I'm doing. And, and so I write a book about it. But then I, I don't want to just stick with that idea. I have new, new ideas that I want to explore. So I want to write something new. You know, for me, a lot of the excitement and fun of writing a novel is um, the, you know, that, that world creation and that, you know, taking some science or technological idea and, and running and doing something new with it. 
Um, so with uh, with living memory, I, I originally intended it to write a single book. That was that was the plan was to write a single book. Um, but then um, I, I found as I was uh, as I was uh, getting into it um, that there was uh, just more story that I wanted to tell um, than I could reasonably fit in a in a single book. And and kind of the way the story was falling out for me, um, it it uh, kind of divided into three sections uh, neatly. And so. You know, like, well, I, I guess it's going to be a trilogy because, um, you know, that's, uh, you know, that's the story I want to tell. And, and I don't want to, I don't want to create a, you know, 400, uh, you know, this huge tome that's a, a doorstop, you know, I, I, I'm going to, I'm going to break it up and, and, uh, you know, have it as, as three separate books, you know, and I think each, each part has its own shape to it and, uh, you know, resolves um, to some extent, uh, you know, the, the, the story that, you know, so in, in, in living memory at the beginning, they, they've got their exciting fossils that they find and the fossils are taken away from them, right? You know, they're, yep. they're thrown out of the country. They're losing this, uh, you know, scientific discovery. And by the end of the first book, that has, uh, you know, been to a large degree resolved. You know, we, we uh, you know, obviously not going to spoil it, but, you know, there's a, there's a shape to that. But there's still quite a bit that is still going on and not yet resolved. Um, and that, that, you know, brings you through to the... Um, to the whole story of the trilogy. Yeah, it's it's a I'm excited to get to play a small part in getting to read your first trilogy and being here talking to you while it happens. I'm so this sets up my se this next question is a is a two-parter. It's not quite a trilogy, but you know, it's a two-parter. And so have you as an author, sometimes I have found that authors look back on their books and be like, "Oh, you know what? I wish I would have changed this one little thing." Sometimes they don't want to, but sometimes they do want to. And so the first part of the question is, have you ever looked back on some of your work and maybe wish you could have made some changes? And if so, what would those be? The second part of the question is, now that you have a trilogy, does that allow you, are you able to look back at that idea of wanting to change in the past and apply that to this new trilogy going forward? Are there new ideas being born while this trilogy is being done? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, um, I a couple different questions in there. Yeah, uh, yeah. You know, so, so for the for, for the initial uh, uh, part of it, it, it's kind of funny. Um, my my wife laughs at me because you know she says, uh, you know, you're, you, it, it, artists are supposed to be you know conflicted and they're supposed to hate their old work, right? You know, it's like it, it's just it's just terrible. You know, like n nobody should read that because you know that it, it's this new thing. The new thing is the thing. <laughs> Um, and, and I, I've really never been that way. Like I, I go back and I read the, the short stories that, that I got published, you know, years ago and, and that I, you know, half forget what I even wrote in them and I'll go back and read them and I'll be like, you know, that's a really good story. I, I really <laughs> <Yeah>. like that. <laughs> so, um, you know, to some extent I, uh, you know, I'm uh, obviously, um, should am and should be, uh, you know, dead center in the demographic of people who should like my stories, you know, right. If there's anybody that they're written for, they're written for me and the things that I like and think, think are exciting and interesting. So hopefully, uh, you know, I, I like them and they last for me, but, but I, I really find that I do. It's, it's kind of, you know, it makes me feel a little sheepish, but I look back and I'm like, I, I wouldn't change that. I really like it. <laughs> um, so, um, you know, there, there's not a lot that I look back and, and regret, particularly uh, about the stories that, uh, that I've written. Um, at the same time, I, I do feel like um, there are ways in which I, I get better as I, as I go, you know, just with practice and with, uh, you know, continuing to, 
uh, you know, get books under my belt and refine the craft and, and uh, you know, learn how to do things that work well. Um, you know, I, I always... I always tend to feel like my, you know, if you ask, oh, what's your favorite book? It's always the last, you know, the one that I've most recently yeah. written because, you know, that's the one that I'm closest to and most into and, and whatever. So um, it, it will, one thing that will be interesting to me as far as this trilogy is concerned um, is, you know, it's always true that as I write a book, um, it, it changes as I go. You know, I have some initial ideas and initial outline, but as I go, I'm like, oh, what about this? Oh, what about that? Um, and so it, you know, it changes as I go. Well, with the trilogy, I have the kind of unique, um, you know, situation where I can, I, I will be getting the reactions of other people, um, like yourself, as yeah. they read my book for for what they found really exciting. I'm like, oh, well, I, I better make sure I put more of that in, <laughs> you know, or, or that's a good idea. Yeah, I should definitely, uh, you know, shift things that way. So we'll see the degree to which um, the, uh, you know, the interactions of other people about the first book affect um, where I go with the, uh, the remaining two. Yeah. It's interesting. Like when, when I was growing up, you know, there, I remember the first, my first introduction to a trilogy was star Wars, you know, and, and I'm like, Oh, look, they did three of them right here. This is amazing. And then, you know, for me, it was, it was almost like the anticipation was something that built up inside me that made me want to go and see the next one. And, you could really see the growth of the characters and you got, it's, it's cool because you got to grow and the characters got to grow. So it's almost like, even though the characters were the same, you were a little bit different because you got to be a little bit older too. So I think that right. the trilogies tend to age well, especially when they're written well. And when the author cares enough to put a lot of integrity into them, like you do, I, I I'm really looking forward to the trilogy. And I think a lot of other people are as well. And so, you know, it's it's always fascinating to me, people that can operate on the edge of imagination. And we had spoken a little bit about how you come up with some of the ideas that that get into your books. But I'm curious how the the technologies or the ideas evolve throughout your books, like evolve in the trilogies. Is it do you take the same technology and continue to move on to it? Or are there outside forces that come in and change what the technology might do? Like, like let's say there's nothing set in stone except Excalibur, but is, is the, the idea of what's happening in this book, living memory is the drugs is, is the characters are, are they going to change radically based on what might happen tomorrow? Or is, is, is this, is it already kind of set? Yeah, no, I, the, the, there, there, there are, there will be new, new revelations and new ideas and new shifts of, uh, of what is possible and, and where things might go. Um, that's, uh, that's definitely, uh, you know, part of what I'm, what part of what I'm doing here. It's not just that, you know, okay, we've, we've set the idea and now, uh, you know, everybody's just going to fight over it and we'll see who wins. <laughs> it's, uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, they de definitely have, uh, you know, new things that are coming to play, play, uh, you know, new, new uh, in investigations that discover new things that impact our ideas of, um, you know, who, who we are and how things work. And um, yeah, that new stuff coming. Nice. What, when you look at your, 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 a series of work, if you look at all your books in the past, have you, 
thought about translating them into film or short stories or even like graphic novels or anything like that? Yeah. So, um, I, I mean, I, I do have a film agent um, and uh, he, he is, uh, you know, my agency is, is actually the same agency that represents uh, George R.R. R. Martin. So, you know, they're, they're connected and know what they're doing in, in yeah. that industry. Um, but it's, uh, it, it's really, really hard to, <laughs> yeah. you know, the, the funnel is, is incredible. Um, and, uh, and with superposition, uh, we actually got, uh, got, you know, somewhat far along where, uh, you know, there was a, a director hired and there was a writer hired and they were, uh, you know, they had put together a screenplay and what it was going to be like and a treatment and they were going around and, and uh, you know, there was some interest and, you know, some people were getting on board. Uh, but what, what kind of happens, at least as it's described to me by my film agent, is, is that, you know, it's kind of like a, a magnet where, um, you know, you have something and, and somebody says, oh, that's an interesting idea. And they're like, you know, but I, I'm not sure if I'm interested in, unless, you know, I'm sure that this is going to succeed because of, of other good people that are involved in this project. You know, so if somebody else starts to show a little interest and they show a little interest and, and you know, suddenly, all right, everything starts coming together because there are big, important people who are involved in this project and there's money and there's, you know, and, and because of that, that pulls in more people and, and, you know, and there's a possibility of something getting made. Um, but sometimes that starts to happen. And, and then, you know, there's something and, and somebody loses a little faith and they're like, yeah. uh, you know, or, or they just just get distracted with a new idea, you know, and suddenly, well, well, if that person's not involved anymore, I don't want to be involved anymore. And, you know, <laughs> and, and so, you know, it's this, am I being associated with something that's going to happen or is it not going to happen? And, th and, and then, you know, everybody flees the ship. Um, so, you know, apparently that, that kind of thing happens a lot. Um, and, uh, you know, so, uh, it, it never actually came to fruition, which is, you know, by far the more common, uh, experience is that things don't come to fruition and only very occasionally they do. So, you know, we'll see, um, my, my, uh, my film agent also, uh, you know, kind of rolls his eyes and says, you know, what were you thinking writing a dinosaur book if, if you wanted to make a film out of it? You know, like the Jurassic Park franchise has that locked up, you know, there, there's no way that somebody's going to come in and make a non-Jurassic Park dinosaur movie or, or, or show, you know, like, you know, a, a uh, so like, just forget about that one. That's not going to happen. <laughs> That'll probably be the one that goes for sure. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I, I know some screenwriters and they, um, they write beautiful. Like the, the way they write seems to leap off the page and not only that, but it just enters into you and makes you want to cry or get your skin like showing goosebumps and stuff. And I was asking them about their writing and I'm like, you know, the question I had asked them is like, have you guys, What's, what's the process like? And, and they were kind enough to, to allow me to watch one time. They wrote this beautiful script and it was a, it could have been a beautiful story with like a, with like a great ending, but they submitted it. And the, the, the person, whoever's in charge, the literary agent, or I'm not sure who's in charge of screenwriters that says yay or nay, but they sold it to this company and the company looked at it and said, no, 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 we want it to be this. And they wanted them just to, butcher the integrity of the story. Hey, let's take out all the beauty and put this ugly stuff in here. And it's like, I don't know if, if it's worth it sometimes. And I'm curious, David, if like, let's say that you got this option to sell your book, to sell your script. And then someone was like, okay, this is great, 
but we think it should be this. And like, they just tear, they tear out the heart of it. Like, I don't, would you be like, in some ways it would be a travesty. What would you, would you be willing to give that up and sell your book to someone and then give them the rights to butcher it? Mm -hmm. So I'll I'll tell you how I think about that. Okay. Um, So um, on the one hand, uh, you know, I, I have no capability uh, really of, of making a, a TV show or a movie on my own, right? That, right. that, uh, that requires a, a whole lot of people who have a whole yeah. lot of different skills and different imagination and creativity and, and things that they bring to the table that all have to come together in order to make something like that. Right. Um, and so, you know, to some extent, like there's a large degree to which I don't necessarily feel this uh, sense of, oh, you know, the story exactly how I've put it is sacrosanct. And nobody must touch or change any <laughs> any iota of it in order to you know work it make it work for a new medium. No, you know there are people who are who are experts in that medium and in what works in that medium, and you know things uh, get changed. Now sometimes they get changed for the worse, and you know sometimes uh, you know things uh, you know somebody tries to do something and it really tanks. Sometimes uh, you know authors hate the show that was made from their work. You know all all of that is is certainly possible. Um, you know, on the other hand, nothing that anybody does with a TV show makes the books disappear, right? The mm, books are still yeah. there. People can yeah. still read the books. In fact, more people will read the books if there's a show made out of it, even if yeah. it's, uh, you know, completely different. Um, uh, you know, David Brin tells the story of The Postman. I don't know if you're familiar yeah. with The yeah, Postman the book and The Postman the movie um, and how, you know, utterly different they are. And, you know, the book is, you know, one of my, you know, favorite books and the movie, uh, you know, is not. So, um, (laughs) and, uh, you know, and I won't go into like, you know, his his whole story of the experience of the making of that and, and, uh, you know, and and all of the interactions um, that went into that and, and going to the premiere and like, you know, sitting in the very back with his wife and nobody even knew who he was, you know, and and it's... (laughs) Um, you know, it's, it, it's a whole world and it's a whole experience. On the other hand, uh, you know, you can still read the postman. It's still a great book. Um, and, uh, you know, so nothing like in order to enter into that world, you have to some extent, put your story into the hands of other people and other people can do wonderful things with it. Um, or they can, you know, they, they can fall flat and, and, you know, not succeed in that, but I can't control that. I can't do it for them. It's not my skill set. And so I would be, you know, happy, ecstatic to give other people the chance to try and see what they made of it. And it might be wonderful and it might fail, but that, you know, gives them, you know, just the idea that somebody's going to take my story and is excited enough about my story that they're going to go pour all of that creative energy into making something out of it in, in, in a new medium. I'm happy for people to uh, to do that if uh, if that's what they'd like to do. Yeah, that's a great way to put it. And I I, I didn't think about it like that, but yeah, what better way? It's a huge compliment for someone to want to take your story and then add their creativity to it, especially when they're professionals in the field. And you know, I think that there's something beautiful about giving up something and allowing other people to build on top of it. And I think that's a, I think that's progress. I think it's a beautiful thing. I'm glad you shared that with me because I, I was under the impression that, man, maybe this always happens, but you're right. It doesn't always happen. A lot of times beautiful things come out of it and nothing beautiful could come out of it unless you gave a chance for it to happen like that. It's interesting to think about. What about like, um, have you ever thought about like maybe 
because you could 3D print some dinosaurs or you could 3D print some mushrooms or something like that. You know, like what about having like a little, your own little line of like, you know, <laughs> that would be awesome, right? That came with the book. Maybe you could get like a package at Barnes and Noble with like four dinosaurs and like a fossil or something. <laughs> that would be awesome. Sounds great. <laughs> Yeah. David, I, I, I want to tell you, I got I to gotta, I gotta go drive a truck here in a little bit, but I, this has exceeded everything I thought it would, man. I'm really thankful to get to spend time with you, and I'm really thankful to get to learn a lot about what went into the book. I'm thankful to get to learn about how you think, and I hope a lot of other people will take from this interview what I took from it, and that's a whole lot of laughter and a whole lot of fun and a whole lot of who is behind creating these amazing books. So thank you for doing it. Where, where Do you have any speaking gigs coming up? Where can people find you, and what are you excited about? Yeah, well, I mean, obviously they can uh, you know, find me in my books. I am going to be uh, at uh, the, the Reeds & Company bookstore in, in Phoenixville this Saturday for anybody who happens to be local. Uh, <laughs> um, but... Um, but yeah, it's it's been. Uh, I I don't know how many people are going to listen to uh, an hour and forty five minutes of us talking together. But uh, it's been it's been a great uh, fun time for me to uh, chat with you about you know some of my favorite subjects. Yeah, me too. So, ladies and gentlemen, one more time, if you're watching this, the here is what the book looks like. If you're just listening to this, the book is called Living Memory by David Walton. And I suggest you pick it up. It's a really fun book to read. It's really insightful. And if you're like me, it'll get your mind racing and thinking about everything from Francis Crick to graphic novels to 3D printed fossils. So do yourself a favor and pick it up and reach out to David. You can find him on Twitter. The links will be in the show notes. Thank you to everybody who's taken time to listen to this. And that's what we got for today. Aloha.
Aloha, everyone. Thanks for taking a moment to hang out with me in the True Life Podcast. I truly appreciate it. If you're taking some time to listen to this, whether it's your first podcast with me or you've been with me the whole way, I truly want to say thank you from the bottom of my heart. Additionally, I would like to try to inspire everyone. The world is a crazy place. And if you listen to your heart and you take some chances, I really think the world will unfold in front of you in ways you can't imagine. I've been doing the podcast for about five years. Last year, I decided to take the plunge. Well, circumstances dictated that I took the plunge. And I did. I've begun working on the podcast full-time for almost a year now. And it's been so rewarding to me that I just want to try and inspire other people. If you have a dream, if you have a vision, follow the voice in your heart. Listen to the song on the wind and embrace the challenge. I think you're strong enough, you're smart enough, and you're good enough to make your dreams come true. But you have to believe in them. And I truly believe wholeheartedly that if you take a chance, a real chance on what is possible, then your dreams will unfold in front of you. Uncertainty can be a monster. It can be something that we run away from. But much like fear, if you stand in front of it, it's not that big of a problem. I know everyone listening to this has a dream and a vision, and I hope you all conquer it. And I want you to know it's possible. Take baby steps and move towards it, and you will get closer to it. Your relationships will be better. Your life will be better. And you know what? You deserve it. You're an amazing person. If you get a moment, go down to the show notes. If you can, support the show. Thank you so much for being here. Now let's get to it.